Hello and welcome back to Biola Backstage. My name is Charlotte McKinley and I am your host. Here with me today is Biola's new provost and senior vice president, Dr. Matt Hall. Dr. Hall comes from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where he was an associate professor of church history, vice president for academic services, the dean of Boys College, and the provost and senior vice president of academic administration. Not all at the same time, though. Dr. Hall is a missionary kid who grew up in Spain and is fluent in Spanish. You'll get to hear more about that later. For now, let's get into the episode. So, Dr. Hall, thank you for joining me on this episode. I'm very excited to get to talk to you. You're like a new hot commodity around campus just because you're one of the newer people and you're the senior vice president. But we really don't know you all that well yet. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself and where your academic expertise lie? Yeah, thank you, Charlotte. And I've been looking forward to this. And after, I guess, almost eight months here at Biola, I am just thrilled to get to join you here on Backstage um, yeah, my, my background in uh, my academic training is, is a little eclectic. So I uh, went to college thinking I was going to be a pastor, actually. And then so I went to seminary, did a couple master's degrees in theology, and then ended up graduate school doing my Ph.D. in American history. And so a lot of my research and, and academic work has been in the area of American history, particularly about religion, politics, culture, um, issues like the Cold War and how the Cold War experience shaped the way people saw the world around them. Um, so that's my background. I've taught um, at the undergraduate level and at the graduate level, everything from American history, American government, church history, theology, uh, a little bit of missiology, if we really want to get precise. So kind of a little eclectic. So what is the primary difference, you would say, teaching undergrad versus graduate? Yeah, I've done both. And I, at the risk of offending people, I actually, over the course of my career, have come to love teaching undergraduates mm -hmm. more. Uh, I love, you know, there's there's something wonderful about teaching a PhD seminar and, and helping developing scholars really start to do deep research and write, you know, at that level. Um, but I think undergraduate student teaching is, for me at least, more rewarding because the opportunity for education and formation that happens in a single semester, I've never seen anything like it. Like you can take, and, and you, I hope this has been your experience, Charlotte, in one semester, somebody's whole world can change, just the way they understand themselves, the way they understand the subject material, and the impact that that can have on their sense of calling and, and their, their participation in God's work in the world. So I, I love teaching like 100 level courses when I would teach intro to world history, for example, and we would cover literally in one semester the whole history of the world. And inevitably you're leaving a lot out. But just to see the lights come on for, you know, a first year student, for example, um, and for them to read ancient texts and have conversations about, you know, centuries prior, it, it's, it's really life giving for me. And I do miss that. What would you say your top favorite class is that you've ever taught ever? Oh wow! I I'd say probably an undergraduate course and probably just a survey of American history, mm. and then close second. I taught a class for undergrads. Uh, it was called Church History Two, so that was um, looking kind of from the Reformation on, and that that was really exciting because you start to see students who realize okay, the challenges that I'm experiencing as a follower of Christ, they're not new. And the solutions that God offers us 
and then his word and by his spirit, those are not new. And, and I can learn from Christians who've come before me. So American history is just fun uh, and, and, and so helpful, I think, for helping us think through what does it mean to be good citizens in our society and, and how do we navigate our citizenship in heaven and citizenship in the world. Um, but then church history, too, would be a close second. On a quick rabbit trail question, one of the things I took a history class in community college and my professor was very adamant that history does not repeat itself. But a lot of people are very much like we need to learn our history because we are destined to repeat it if we never look back. So what are your thoughts on that? Do you think history actually repeats itself or are we just seeing patterns and like, what, what, what's your perception on that? How nerdy do we want to get here, Charlotte? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I, I do think it, that the way the conversation often breaks down among historians. And so you could go read like, you know, do you have a linear view of history? Uh, is it teleological, right? There's a telos at the end. That's generally the Christian understanding of it, right? There's a telos, there's an aim, a goal, um, in God's in the consummation of all things in Christ, you know, for Marx it is cyclical. It's these cycles of class conflict and and eventually resulting in kind of a utopian outcome. And so there's a telos there. It's just materialistic. Um, I I actually think as a historian that history never repeats itself in exactly the same way. But we start with some presuppositions about kind of what the Bible says about the world God's made, who He is, who we are. And you do pretty quickly start to realize there are rhythms and, and cycles of repetition. So it's never exactly the same, but you can't read, for example, the book of Judges. And clearly the author of Judges is signaling to us, the reader, there is a theme of, of a pattern of repetition. It's never exactly the same thing. Different characters, the dynamics look a little different. In fact, it gets worse as the book goes along. So the way this story of history is told in the book of Judges Yes, there's repetition, right? Um, Israel sins, they fail, they fall. Um, God sends his judgment, and then there's a savior, you know, a judge who emerges to redeem God's people, and then they go about it all over again. And so at least in a biblical sense, yeah, there's repetition. And I think we we see that around us, for example, in American history. It, It is true. There are themes that we kind of cycle back to in our national conversation and in the way in which we understand ourselves in this country. And at the same time, it's not the same as it was. There, there is a development. There's a, there's a moving forward, so to speak, in history. And um, so, I, I think you've asked a question that maybe you and me and two of your listeners will find interesting. <laughs> but at least you and I hopefully enjoy it. So moving back onto the actual trail, not the rabbit yeah. trail. You have been a professor for a while, and now you're an administrator, and you were an administrator before coming to Biola. So what has that been like? Like, what was your experience moving from a professor and a place of teaching to more of an administrative role where you're not talking to students as much? You're just kind of like focused on numbers and faculty and everything It's the soul-crushing reality of, (laughs) of an administrator. That's a great question, Charlotte, and and I'm glad you asked it because um, if you had asked me as a college student, like a senior in college at this little liberal arts school in western Pennsylvania, I I would not have told you, oh, yeah, you know, at the 20-year reunion, I'll come back and say, I'm an, I'm an administrator in a Christian university. Um, I I went to graduate school thinking I was preparing to be a history professor at 
not even necessarily a Christian context. I thought I'll just go teach American history at some little school somewhere. And along the way, what actually happened was, and, and so I started teaching like adjunctively and, and doing that, you know, here and there. But along the way, actually kind of early on, someone in, in where I was would just kind of tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, would you take on this responsibility while you're, you know, in grad school, for example. And, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm at that time was, uh, was married and had you know, very small children. So I was like, well, I got to put food on the table and pay the bills. So yeah, I'll take that. And I just kind of found unexpectedly that God opened up opportunities for me to say yes to and to try some things. And I made a lot of mistakes, but people took a risk by giving me those opportunities. And rather than me saying, well, no, no, that's not the plan, God just had a really gracious and kind way of bringing me along slowly and giving me those opportunities. And so it wasn't like an overnight, oh, now I'm going to you know, shift in the, in, to a different kind of road here. It just kind of happened where I, I do remember at some point thinking, okay, my contribution isn't going to be to write the next great, you know, Bancroft Prize winning work in American history. There might have been a time where I thought that was my hope or ambition. It's actually, I think God's calling me to serve in an institutional context where I can use the limited gifts he has given me to try to foster a community of learning and a culture, an institutional context where those kinds of scholars who do that kind of work can flourish. So if I'm doing my job as an administrator effectively, uh, students and faculty will thrive in the classroom. The faculty will write those kinds of books. They will be those kind of premier Christian scholars, and students will benefit from that teaching relationship. So that's kind of how I now all these many years later look back and go, well, I, I love teaching, and I do uh, candidly wish I could do more of it. I wish I had more time to write, but I think this is what God's called me to in this season. So as a provost, a lot of people don't exactly know what that is. And earlier last semester when you and I were talking, I asked you, like, what's one of the biggest questions that people have on campus? And you're like, what's a provost? (laughs) So could you explain for our listeners what being a provost is? And is that the same here at Biola as in what it would be in other institutions? Or do we have a different take on the role of the provost? Yeah, right before this, I was literally in a meeting where uh, someone brought up a photo of the Provost Dungeon in Charleston, South Carolina. And so it meant something different, I think, in colonial Charleston uh, in in the British Empire. But um, no, I'm not I'm not a a prison warden or anything like that. yeah, it's. It, I'd say it's pretty standard now in higher education. The assumption is that the the or the expectation is that the provost functions as the chief academic officer of the university, so uh, coordinating and overseeing under the authority of the president and reporting ultimately to the board of trustees um, all of the university's academic programs and personnel. So, if you want to kind of think of those two big categories, programs and personnel. Sometimes in some universities, for example, enrollment might be under that, how we recruit, you know, students. Uh, in some places, you know, the provost is expected to have a, a, a significant role in fundraising and advancement. And there's a little bit of that here. But but at its core, it really is to, to provide leadership and direction for academic programs and academic personnel. So that's faculty in particular, but also support staff. So I, I have the great privilege of working with the nine deans of our nine academic schools here at Biola University. I, I get to work with an incredible team of assistant provosts who facilitate everything from um, helping facilitate the curriculum, uh, accreditation issues, the registrar, 
Um, I'm going to forget something and offend somebody here. Mm-hmm. Oh, student success, uh, wonderful uh, leadership there under uh, Tiffany Lee, our associate vice president, working with Tamara Malone, our chief diversity officer. Um, so a lot of areas of that nature. So a lot of my time is working with a really extraordinary leadership team to make sure that we are serving effectively and making sure that Biola is healthy when it comes to our academic mission. Has there been any specific area where you've found a lot of difficulty in or an area that's been like pretty easy or has it fluctuated based on how you've been getting your feet wet and then completely submerged and all that stuff? What what has been easy? Uh, <laughs> well, let's see. Yeah, it's been eight months and Biola is in a really unique moment in its history. You know, we're since 1908, this university's experienced tremendous blessing, even through real difficulties and hardships. But God has always been faithful to Biola, and he's brought thousands upon thousands of students through this place, whether it was in downtown L.A. or now here in La Mirada. And I see him doing that. I see him continuing to do that. But the hardest things, I think, in the last eight months has been to see or to recognize I'm merging into an institution, and there are real relationships here and and, uh, real people who have deep histories and ties to the institution and to one another. And so we've had to, you know, collectively make some really hard decisions. And I, I think without a question, you know, there's always the learning curve anytime you take a new job in a new place. But when it's in the context of, um, of having, having to make some of those hard decisions with the rest of the university administration, and you know that those decisions mean really painful consequences uh, for real people and real families, that's that's the hardest part, without question. Have you had to adjust your mindset in any way concerning higher education since you came from a seminary and now you're at a liberal arts university? I mean, we do have a seminary with Talbot, basically, but we also have a whole other section. We have eight other schools that aren't uh, seminary schools. So have you had to adjust your mindset in leadership and how that all happens? Yeah, in some ways that you might expect, in other ways that might not be so obvious. So in some ways it's not, it hasn't been surprising. I mean, I think my experience at um, the University of Kentucky where I finished graduate school, I got a really great front row seat as a PhD student to just how the bureaucracy of a of a land grant, you know, R1, big state university works. And um, and then I think even in my time at, at uh, the seminary where I served at in Louisville, Kentucky, you know, we were actually not that different in terms of the overall size of the enrollment. It was just flipped. So we had uh, an undergraduate college, and uh, years ago I was dean of that for about three years, and we had about 800 students in the college. The rest, the majority, were graduate students. So it was just, it was kind of flipped from what Biola is. But I think that did give me some helpful experience coming into this of working as as an academic administrator with, you know, business faculty, education faculty, um, communications, political science. That, so it was it was a more broad range of disciplines than the, just a seminary traditionally would. Certainly not as broad as, as Biola. But that helped me, I think, just understand how, how can you, for example, create a faculty culture where faculty and professors aren't just kind of siloed by their specialization, where they develop real collaboration, where they integrate faith and learning across their disciplines, and they even, frankly, build friendships with you know, people in very different academic disciplines and where students then benefit from that, where Mm -hmm. where students in their majors go, I actually want to take a class in something outside of my major because I see 
how this all fits together. I think that helped. I think what has been, what's maybe different is how it is kind of flipped from where I came from. And then a way that may not be so obvious, you know, the context I was in was a significant institution that was in a sense owned by and certainly accountable to a denomination. And that brings about a particular kind of form of how the board of trustees relates to the institution. Uh, generally, the majority of the students who come to the institution come from that denominational context, and certainly the faculty represent that. Biola is very different, right? We're a non-denominational uh, institution, and so we have a statement of faith, and we're really clear about our convictions as a university, and so that means not everybody is going to be a fit here on the faculty. But those who are come from a variety of backgrounds, and we do have a diversity of conviction and belief within the framework of our uh, statement of biblical principles. So that's been wonderful for me to just, frankly, be around colleagues and scholars who we don't agree on everything. And we have this range of backgrounds and experiences and denominational representation, but it's really healthy at Biola, and and that's been really life-giving for me. Would you say that was surprising seeing how the civil discourse was actual was actually civil because a lot of times in our nation nowadays it's like, "Oh, you have a different belief or thought than mine. Well, we can't be friends anymore. I can't respect you as a person because you're an idiot for thinking this and this and this." And then the same person thinks or the other person thinks the same about the other person, and it's just we're at a time where we're very uncivil in our discourse. Yeah, actually, when I was, I mean, I've known of Biola for a long time, have actually two sisters who both went to Biola, Mm -hmm. um, one for graduate school, one for her undergrad. And so I've known of it. But when I was kind of reacquainting myself with Biola, one of the things I really was impressed by was the Winsome Conviction Project that uh, Drs. Langer and Muhoff are leading. And and I think it speaks to exactly what you're articulating, Charlotte. Um, I, I do see so much good evidence of that happening at Biola, where there are people from different perspectives, whether they're students, faculty, staff, who are able to not just have a civil conversation. Because at one level, you kind of would think that anybody, even an unbeliever, should be capable of just being polite. Mm -hmm. So we're not aiming for just like basic politeness. We're aspiring at Biola, I think, as a community of learning to something far more redemptive a culture or an ethos of agape love and koinonia fellowship, so to speak, to get really preachy here, but but something that's more than just mere politeness. We're talking about self-sacrifice. We're talking about preferring one another above ourselves. And I, I do see that at Biola. I, I think there's even greater opportunity for us to grow into that in ever-increasing measure. And, and that's when I get excited about thinking how God is using and will, I pray, in growing measure use Biola in the lives of our students, our alumni, in our communities to kind of be salt and light, you know, not just in what we say on paper, the way in which we articulate those beliefs. And, and we, we're forbearing with one another and we're charitable and we, we don't misrepresent one another's beliefs, but we actually listen well. One of the things that I found interesting was that, and we were talking about this a little bit before, but I knew about it beforehand, is that you actually lived in Spain for a while. You were a pastor's kid and missionary kid, all that fun stuff. So I also found when I was doing my background research that you have spoken and preached at several different uh, Spanish-speaking communities. And being in Southern California, where we have a lot of Spanish-speaking communities, has that been spiritually enriching for you? 
Si me permites, ahora Charlotte, te voy a decir que verdaderamente me encanta hablar el castellano. Es el idioma del cielo. Okay, so uh, that's the answer to your question. I love speaking in Spanish. I do think we will speak Spanish in heaven. Um, but one of my favorite things in Southern California has been to do what I just did to you, to people who clearly are not expecting me to speak Spanish, and then to see their facial expression. I've done that. My kids now know it's kind of like a party trick. <laughs> One of the things I've come to love about living in Southern California these last eight months is just the the different cultures and languages and not just Spanish-speaking communities, but from all over the world who live here in Los Angeles and in the broader region and is represented at Biola. So, um, yeah, I haven't done any preaching in Spanish out here yet. And if you hear it, my accent is a little different. So that's a result of living in Spain. And so... It sounds strange to everybody. Uh, everybody thinks it's a bit surprising. Personal curiosity here. Do you prefer speaking Spanish over speaking English? English is definitely easier. Mm -hmm. So before the pandemic, I tried to, uh, I usually was somewhere in the Spanish speaking world at least once a year. So uh, my favorite memory was my wife and I led a group of college students to Spain on the Camino de Santiago, which is the, the pilgrim of St. Of St. James. And so we backpacked and had blisters on every square inch of our feet, and it was amazing. And I have found over the years that it takes me usually about a day in that context where, you know, kind of the, the, the rust gets knocked off, and I'll start thinking in Spanish. And if I get really lucky, I might even dream in Spanish. But it does take work. And so if I teach a class or I speak in a church in Spanish, I will, I will feel physically more exhausted at the end mm -hmm. of it than if I'm doing the same in English. So I love it, but it is, it is more draining on me just because I have to work at it more. And that's probably a result of not keeping it up as actively as I certainly do my English. So yeah, if any, anybody listening wants to come by my office and speak in Spanish, they can help <laughs> me stay fresh. Yeah. You could be a guest presentator or guest lecturer or just a guest in general sit in on some of our Spanish courses. That could be fun. Or we could all go to Spain together. Yeah. Study <laughs> that, abroad. Yeah. We'll all go to Spain and have fun and eat well. That sounds brilliant. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so kind of bouncing off of that, do you see ways that Biola could reach those communities more effectively? Yeah. I, I, I think a lot of us continue to try to listen well to the Hispanic and Latino community here in Southern California. And I, in God's providence, I guess, um, maybe about a month ago, it was with some colleagues. We had a lunch on campus with a group of pastors and leaders from different ministries around kind of the greater LA area, all from Spanish-speaking contexts. And we kind of asked, like, what are you looking for in a, in a college? And, and I mean, these are large churches with um, really amazing ministries. And, you know, they kind of kept it really simple. And they just said, you know, we are so aware that the young women and young men in our churches who love Jesus and want to walk with him, when they go off to other universities, their faith isn't strengthened. It's actually frankly, undermined. And, uh, and yet they, they, so they want a Christian higher education experience. And for all of the other questions that you might imagine they would ask, their fundamental question was, can you tell us if our students come to Biola, will their faith be strengthened? Mm. Are they going to, you know, we want them to work through the hard questions. We want them to wrestle with that. We want them to own their faith. But if they're going to go to the time and the expense 
of a Biola education, we want to know uh, that when they graduate, they're not just getting a diploma. They're going to have walked in the way of Jesus with their professors and with their fellow students and be strengthened. And uh, I just thought that's so encouraging, right? And so I think it, that's where for all the things that we can always do better and, and building those bridges and partnerships, uh, we will do the most vital thing best when we're faithful to our mission. And that's a, that's a mission that transcends a lot of those other divisions. So I, I think there's just so much, so much opportunity for Biola there. Kind of going back to a bit more of your background, uh, when I was exploring some of your background from previous institutions, I know that you've faced scrutiny for a few of the things that you've said, um, specifically surrounding critical race theory. So I want to know, how did those challenges that you faced surrounding those positions that you've held and talked about in, in critical race theory inform who you are as a leader at Biola today? This is the second episode, uh, I guess. No, how long do we have? I, yeah, I think I learned along, and I know this was not unique to me, a number of us, um, and I, I'm not, I'm, nobody knows who I am. I'm, 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 um, there are certainly people of much greater reputation and notoriety uh, who, who took heat in those years. Mm-hmm. I think I learned through that. You can't always be trying to calibrate your comments based entirely or primarily by how they're going to be received. At at the same time, we can always, I can always do better at being thoughtful and nuanced and making sure that I communicate with absolute clarity. And when I do get it wrong, correcting it, I always want to do that. But I do think there is something to not getting caught up in this cycle of outrage culture that is so much around us and so prevalent uh, of listening well. And, and if you, at the end of the day, have spoken truthfully, you can't control how people listen or, or refuse to listen. You can't control whether they take something out of context or not. You can't control if they just fundamentally disagree with you. But if, you, if your conscience is clear before the Lord and you feel like you've spoken the truth, even imperfectly, then you can rest at night and and trust in the Lord's care and, and his power. And in those occasions where you think, okay, I could have done that better, then you go and you you try to, you know, set the record straight. I think what happened, not just with me, but in a number of situations, is somewhat reflective of just the polarization that you were describing mm-hmm. a moment ago, Charlotte, just the unwillingness to consider another perspective. And um, in my context where I was, I had a lot of students uh, who are from underrepresented groups in the institution where I lived and worked, who had real challenges, and and they would come to me and voice those. And uh, so there were occasions where I was, you know trying to advocate for a community that um, would be always more welcoming to people who didn't always feel welcome. You know, some not everybody wants to hear that, and I think. Again, going back to what we were talking about a moment ago, on a lot of our conversations, we've allowed the world, so to speak, to dictate the terms and even the vocabulary of those conversations. And so when it comes to these very complicated conversations about race, for example, or justice, um, I want to think about what does the Bible say about hospitality, for Mm -hmm. example, and what does it mean for a Christian university to be a welcoming place the way God defines that? And what does the Christian virtue of hospitality look like? And and kind of setting the table, even, if we can use that language, for all those that God would call to be at Biola. 
And I think that's where the Christian community and our churches, we have something to offer to the world. We have a better way than the way of outrage and just kind of writing one another off. How would you suggest going about cultivating that community of hospitality here at Biola? We don't have a lot of people of underrepresented cultures here. We are a predominantly white university. And sometimes there's one tract of people who think, well, we are a predominantly white university. That's our demographic. Why should we be catering to these people? And then there's another tract of people who are like, no, these people have voices that need to be heard and they need to be welcomed in. And we need to try to get other people in because of that diversity and everything. And then there's a whole nother tract of people who are just like, oh, you're just bringing in these people because you're filling a diversity quota. So there's a whole bunch of different thoughts out there and it can be infuriating to try and show that Christian hospitality Mm -hmm. and you're going to get critiqued no matter what you do, which again, it's so easy to do in this culture. So how would you suggest as Biola, first of all, as Biola as a university, but then also Biola students in general, how would you suggest bringing in that hospitality and showing that hospitality? Well, I, I think that in a lot of these things, we overcomplicate it. So mm-hmm. this is going to sound like a cop-out, and, and people may disagree with this, because there are complex dynamics here. I'm not negating the fact that there are complexities. But we tend to, we tend. To, there's a difference between something being complex and then making it complicated. Mm-hmm. So complexity and complication aren't necessarily always synonymous. And I think in a lot of our conversations and thinking about these kinds of issues and, and dynamics, we tend to make them overly complicated, even if they are complex. So what do I mean by that? We sometimes need to go just back to the basics and ask, and, and I know people say, well, you, you're, this sounds like you're, you're making, uh, you're oversimplifying something. It's not simple. I'm not saying that. But let's take, for example, how can we foster a community here at Biola that truly is welcoming in the redemptive sense of that term? I will say, by the way, Biola, relative to a lot of our fellow CCCU institutions, actually is more diverse than sometimes we may give ourselves credit for. So there is, and you can just feel it when you walk the campus, there's something special happening here. And the Biola of 2023 is different in that regard than the Biola of, say, 1983. Mm -hmm. Um, So we got to also keep that perspective. But I think to go back to the basics, so to speak, is to say, well, why, why is it important? that we have a a community of learning here, both student, faculty, and staff alike, who represent, you know, the the diversity of the kingdom of God, and certainly the diversity of the community in which we live in Southern California and the West Coast. If if you listen to the world, you're going to hear, well, it's kind of diversity for the sake of diversity, right? Diversity for the sake of representation or, or equity of justice and power or whatever it may be. And, and it's not that those things are entirely irrelevant, but it's just that the, the Christian call is to something far more transcendent and meaningful. It's to recognize that we are, especially in a community like Biola, where we all are professing faith in Christ, we're actually brothers and sisters. And so if my posture here at Biola, as I relate to people from different backgrounds, whatever those may be, whether it's male, female, different racial and ethnic groups, socioeconomic status, whatever it may be, if my fundamental posture towards you is not just, Charlotte, you're a student and you're, you're from the Pacific Northwest and you're a woman. No, but my fundamental posture towards you is you're my sister in Christ. 
Well, if that's where we start from, I do believe in my bones deeply that it transforms the way that we speak to one another, the way we speak about one another. It changes the way we listen to each other. And it also, frankly, means we have to put up with each other because when you're family, you don't get to quit on each other. And there's a trust there and it has to be. And and when that trust is broken and people who have experienced this in their literal families, they know or their physical families, they know it's all the more painful. Right. When 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 there's an abuse of trust in a family, in a home, it is devastating. Well, that's true in our spiritual family as well, in the household of God. So I, I I I do believe that there is real hope for that in places like Biola and at Biola to make real progress, but it's going to require this discipline on our part to continually remind ourselves of those basics of what God says to be true. And then that's the, that's the foundation that allows us to get into those really challenging, complex questions like, well, what, when something happens in the news and we're all kind of going, well, what do we say? What do we not say? Um, how do we understand that situation or that crisis or the situation? It seems really complicated. Well, if, if, if we've got the foundation healthy, we have a much better chance of navigating those situations when they emerge. If the foundation's not there, then we're just going to devour and consume one another, as as, uh, the New Testament describes it. We're going to just eat each other up. So a completely different tone shift. You're coming up on your provost installation really soon, but You've already been a provost for eight months, and that can I made it. I survived. (laughs) So can you explain what the provost installation really is? Like why it's taking place eight months after you became a provost? What all that looks like? Why is it even a thing? Yeah, I I think Dr. Corey just, you know, DBC wanted to take me for a test drive and make sure (laughs) that, you know, well, no, I I think actually we, we had talked originally about doing it in the fall. And honestly, there was just so much, there was so much on the calendar and things that frankly mattered a lot more than this, that we just thought, let's, let's kick it to February um, and, and really give the primary attention to things we needed to. I mean, think about it this way, Charlotte, this fall was really the first fall semester that we had kind of a a normal fall, so to speak, Mm -hmm. since the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So it was really important that the Biola community have every opportunity that we needed to re-engage and come together this fall. And honestly, the installation of the provost was did, did, should not have been at the front uh, of that to-do list. So what it really is, it's just a, um, a kind of an academic tradition to recognize. And it's, it's about really Biola. And so my hope and prayer for, for that time that we'll spend together on February 24th is, is that it would be an opportunity for God to call to mind and to memory what it means for us to be about the academic mission that we have, to be faithful to it, uh, and to spend some time in prayer together as a community as we think about the future. Are you excited for it? I am. I am. I'm very excited. I've got some friends who are coming into town to be part of that, including uh, Russell Moore, who's a longtime friend and uh, former colleague. And so uh, not quite getting it, it feels a little bit like a band reunion, you know, getting <laughs> some old friends together and new friends, too, from uh, the Biola community and, and around the region who are going to be part of that. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And I, and I do hope that it's a great day for Biola. Yeah, above all. Now, this is my second to last question because we have a specific question we asked at the end of every episode. But before that, what is something that you are most looking forward to in your time here as provost? Uh, I'm looking forward to 
getting, you know, we've got some open dean searches and just a lot of change at the university, um, including in the kind of the, the leadership team. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how God's going to bring those pieces together. I mean, we're all working and praying really hard to, to go about those searches. But I'm really looking forward and, and honestly kind of excited to see the amazing people that God's going to continue to bring. And then honestly, it's always been true in my career. I love graduation days and preview days. And so I love meeting students at preview day. I'm looking forward to one in just a few weeks here talking to high school students and their families. And then I love years later when it kind of comes full circle and I see a student at graduation. I'm not, I've got a few years to go to get to that cycle, but I'm really looking forward to, you know, putting some roots down here, being here for you know a while and seeing those students, high school students go from preview day to graduation day. And our final last question as we land this episode what advice do you have for Biola students or Biola soon-to-be graduates? Yeah, I've, I've thought about this a little bit. And in, in one way, I'm sure there's some advice I could give that's really tailor-made for Biola students. And, um, and I, I could give you my thoughts on that. But I actually think what I would say is far more transcendent, so to speak, for Christian university students anywhere who are about to graduate or are still enrolled. And that would just be, um, don't fall out of love with the local church. Mm. I, I understand, you know, the, the church is broken and people experience pain in the church and you can just turn on your, you know, look at your phone or your social media scroll and you're, every day you're going to see some reminder that the church is broken and imperfect and still marked by sin and, and people do horrible things in the name of Jesus sometimes. And yet, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ endures. And Christ keeps his promise to build his church. And so I would just say to any student at Biola, do everything that you need to do to flourish in your studies. Do everything that you need to do to flourish in your growth and development as a person and your and, and holistically. Uh, build meaningful relationships. Work hard at developing your sense of calling and career. But don't neglect the local church. And, and don't neglect not just filling a seat, but building meaningful community and serving the least of these and getting to know that widow uh, in your church or getting to know that, that person who works in a you know blue-collar job that you maybe can never relate to or that person who might maybe, in fact, they work in an executive role and they make more money in one year than you'll ever make in your whole, whatever the diversity of careers and life situations, it's in those not glamorous moments in the life and the rhythm of a church where I think God actually meets us in some really powerful ways. And a lot of the things that I find college students are wrestling with right now, or they, they wrestle with right after they launch out after graduation, I think God's design for us is that we wrestle through those and together in community in the church. And so do that now so that when you launch out after, after school, you're not kind of left wandering alone in isolation. So just, that'd be my call. Don't fall out of love. Don't give up on the local church and stay close to Jesus. Just walk in his ways and um, make sure that he's your priority. Thank you so much, Dr. Hall, for coming on the show and for all of your words of advice and also letting us get to know you a little bit more. I really appreciated that, especially since it can be easy just to see you as just, oh, there goes 
A random person walking by. Random person. <laughs> yeah, random person. That's me. <laughs> actually, a little side note before like we actually end the episode, but when I found out that you were the provost and everything, keep in mind I had no idea who you were beforehand, but I'd always see you around campus and I would be like, okay, this is my moment. I'm going to go up and introduce myself to him. And then you would always turn the corner oh. and go somewhere else. And I'm like, shoot. Well, it was, I wasn't doing it on purpose. I'm sure. But yes. let's <laughs> just say any of your listeners, any students who are listening, they should totally do that. I've actually had students come up to me and say, hey, are you the, uh, what do you call it, the uh, provost? And I'll say, yeah. And, and it's been, that actually has been many a time, with a few times when it's happened, it's been the best part of my day. So I would be so grateful for anybody who comes up and says you're the guy i'm so and so i'm from here and there yeah just love to love to have those conversations okay so to all of our listeners that is your specific call to action next time you see dr hall around campus and congratulate him on his successful installation as provost so thank you again dr hall for coming on thank you charlotte Thank you for listening to this episode of Biola Backstage. It was a pleasure getting to talk with Dr. Hall and learning more about him. If you're interested, the Provost installation is Friday, February 24th in Calvary Chapel from 9.30 to 10.20 a.m. Dr. Hall would love to see you there, and if you can't make it, make sure to tell him hi when you see him around campus. Until next time, Biola. Biola.